This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Uh, welcome to the last of our three talks in our STEM series. Um, STEM stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, and Mathematics. And today we are delighted to have Arthur Urban. Uh, he is a day trader, so he uses a lot of heavy mathematics, uh, specifically statistics, in his day-to-day -day work in making some really important decisions about uh, finance, investments, portfolios, and things of that nature. So Art here, um, of course, he started his education at Moraine Valley Community College, right? And then he went on to the University of Michigan. He earned a degree in mathematics. And in my understanding, he's still going to school. So he's at DePaul uh, getting a degree in stati uh, statistics right now. So we are um, delighted to have him back. It's probably been a while since, he've been, since he's been back to Moraine Valley. So let us give a warm welcome to Mr. Art Urban. Thank you. All right, let's, there we go. Uh, so right, like Keith said, I graduated from uh, U of M with a degree in math. Um, took a wide variety of courses there. Um, see there, probability theory, applied stats, stat computing. Uh, also took real analysis and tried one day of a graduate topology course before dropping out because it was too hard. So that was my upper limit in math. Um, I spent five years at WH Trading here in Chicago. Um, I recently left to accept a uh, position at a over-the-counter derivatives firm. Um, uh, let's see, some history about WH, uh, founded by Will Hobart in 94. Um, he began trading basically his own money in the, uh, in the FX options pits, um, primarily the, the yen currency options. Uh, from there, they moved on to uh, the Eurodollar options, and, uh, and at the present day, we have like uh, 13 traders in the Eurodollar options pit. Um, the Eurodollar itself is not necessarily the currency. It's the, uh, the interest rate product. Uh, essentially, it's the interest rate that's uh, paid on $1 million deposits outside of the United States. And so that's what they what they trade. I started on the floor of the Chicago Board of Trade, um, supporting the your dollar options traders. Um, and I was there for two months. Um, what I did, I ran inside the pit, collected trading cards, got shoved around, got yelled at, got spit on, and then I moved upstairs to trade equity index futures. Um, I started the first Monday in July of. 2008. Um, I don't know if that was like the third or the first or whatever, but it then Lehman blew up in September and the S&P 500 futures, um, which is a product I was trading, was moving up and down 100 points basically a day, going limit up and limit down. So it was a very crazy time to start trading, uh, to say the least. Um, and then over the course of my career at WH, I traded a whole bunch of stuff, uh, futures, equities, um, a small stint trading um, options on the screen, but that was more in support of the floor. Um, so I traded stuff like Home Depot, General Motors, uh, General Electric, 
uh, in the futures, equity index futures, foreign currency futures, interest rates, and also ETFs, exchange-traded funds. Uh, TLT is a big bond ETF. Uh, TBT is an actual inverse ETF. This stuff kind of gets crazy. Um, also worked with the quants there. Uh, quants, short for quantitative researchers. Uh, one guy in particular uh, has a PhD in algebraic geometry. I'm not even sure what that is, but that's what he majored in, and uh, and uh, a very smart guy. A lot of guys uh, work as quants uh, in Chicago. Um, one program is University of Chicago has a master's of science in financial mathematics. Um, throwing that out there in case you're interested. Uh, and then a couple more things. I'm a chartered financial analyst, uh, which is uh, basically you learn a lot of stuff about uh, valuing uh, equity and fixed income instruments um, more from a fundamental standpoint. So you look at income statements, balance sheets, and try to come up with a value. Um, and now I am the head of trading and risk uh, for direct effects, which is actually Australian, an Australian regulated entity. Uh, we act as a principal to every client transaction. Uh, we trade things, uh, the whole gamut, um, foreign exchange, uh, metals, oil, natural gas, uh, you name it, we trade it. And I'm also pursuing, in the middle of, a master's degree in applied stats at DePaul. All right. So a, a little bit about the history of trading. Um, here in Chicago, um, in the mid-1800s, farmers meet in Chicago to sell their crops forward. So it's, you know, early in March, and the farmers have already put the corn into the ground, and they know they're going to need to sell it in May, and they want to hedge their risk. Um, their risk is that the price of the crop is going to go down, so they come to Chicago, they find a counterparty, um, and tell them, I'll sell you 5,000 bushels at $3.50 a bushel, and the long says... You know, I'll buy those, and, and, and now if the price in the forward market goes down, um, the farmer can deliver his corn at $3.50, and the long is going to have to basically perform, meaning he's going to have to pay the farmer the, the difference uh, between the current price, spot price, and the forward transacted price. Uh, a lot of times what would happen would, would be the speculator, the long, would um, not perform. He would not pay the money, uh, and so then the farmer was out of luck. And so this clearinghouse concept comes into play where basically the Chicago Board of Trade uh, becomes the buyer to every seller and seller to every buyer. So when you buy a contract on the Chicago Board of Trade of, of corn, um, you're actually ultimately transacting with the Board of, Tra Board of Trade clearinghouse. Um, and that just kind of guarantees that um, if you buy it and, and corn goes up and it becomes a winner, uh, you will get paid. And if the short... And they also make, there's also a bunch of different stuff that goes on with this. Uh, clearing firms come into play where they basically make you put a certain amount of money on deposit with the clearing firm uh, to make sure that if you um, are in a big losing position, that you have money to back up the trade. Um, and so, right, so the, the Chicago Board of Trade building, I think everyone's probably seen it, 141 West Jackson. Um, I didn't include a picture of it, but th here's the old Chicago Board of Trading floor. Um, this is looking out over LaSalle. This floor is no longer there. I, I've heard that they uprooted it and sent it off to some museum, but I couldn't find confirmation of that. Uh, and here is the new floor. You'll notice that there's not really a lot of people there, um, and that is mostly the case for the futures markets. The outright futures markets uh, are all essentially electronically traded. 
Um, and then, uh, but there, if you do go to the Chicago Board of Trade, they have a viewing uh, gallery, and you can look at this stuff, and you'll see little tight pockets of people crammed together, and that's usually the options uh, markets are still open outcry and um, pretty heavily traded. Right, so asset classes. So equities and fixed income, I think this is probably um, the stuff that people are most familiar with. Uh, security is a claim on the assets and residual income of a company, municipality, government. So you have municipal bonds, government bonds, bonds. you have uh, corporate debt, uh, and then, of course, you have equity. Um, if you buy one share of Twitter, uh, that basically gives you a claim on any residual income they may or may not uh, produce. Uh, and right, so we have this big capital market. Twitter wants to expand, so they come to the capital markets. They get, um, they sold 70 billion shares at $26 a share or something. So they got, you know, outrageous amounts of money, and uh, now they can build their their product. Uh, ETFs are exchange traded funds. Um, basically, think of this as a mutual fund that trades uh, exactly like a stock. Um, you know, usually a mutual fund like an open-ended fund, you have to send an order at the end of the day, and then you get into the net asset value, and, and this stuff is just um, cheaper to trade. Um, these companies put together all sorts of stocks and bonds together and, and you know, release products uh, such as three times short bear, meaning if the, if the S&P is up 2% today, then this three times short bear is going to be down 6%, and it allows you to really make a big bet on, um, you know, if... If the market goes down, then this thing's going to go up, so you'll make money if you buy it. It's very weird stuff. Short-term dicks. Um, this is going to be an ETF based on the options, based on the futures that is based on the volatility of the S&P 500 futures. So it's a derivative of a derivative of a derivative, and it just this kind of just goes on and on. Um, all right, futures. Um, Track the value of underlying instrument. For example, the S&P 500 index futures. So um, they'll take a look at the actual, where the actual S&P 500 cash index is trading. They'll take into account any dividends that are coming into play, the interest rate, and, uh, and then proprietary trading firms or whomever uh, value these things, provide a bid and offer. Um, they all settle. So uh, the S&P 500, the E-mini, as it's known, um, uh, right now we're in, November, so the current contract is the December for December expiry. So right now, if the S&P is trading 15.05, or if it's expired, it's trading at 15.05, then all the longs and all the shorts get marked to 15.05, and they basically cash settle, meaning they just take take the difference. If you uh, if you paid 14.50 and you settled it at 15.05, then you'll get paid 55 points, um, and one point value is equal to uh, 50 dollars. So whatever that math works out to be. Uh, and then, of course, you have futures on government bonds, corn, natural gas, oil, gold. Um, I already talked about the expiration. And there's exchanges all over the world. The Chicago Board of Trade, I mentioned, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, uh, the Eurex, the Life, the SGX, which is Singapore. Um, Osaka is another one. Um, the Hang Seng. I mean, there's, it just goes on and on. Uh, and then options. Options are a little more uh, esoteric. Uh, you have two types. Uh, you have calls and puts. A call is a is the right but not obligation to purchase something at a predefined price by expiry, and uh, a put is the right to sell. Uh, you have a strike price, which is that predefined price. So, 
a very quick example, if the S&P right now is trading 1500 and you want to purchase the 1550 call, uh, what that essentially lets you do is purchase the S&P 500 future for 1550 before expiration, and uh, the price you actually pay now is called the premium. Uh, so that is going to be based on this little thing, the Black-Scholes model of option pricing. So um, you have the call uh, as a function of the stock price and time as equal to that N is the the basically the area under the curve of the normal probability distribution of the D1, and you look at the D1 there, there's a bunch of different variables. Uh, sigma, right there, maybe I'll point at it. Or maybe I can put the mouse. Ah, good. Um, this is the time remaining to expiration, the natural log of the current stock price over the strike price, plus the risk-free rate, plus another sigma, plus time, so a bunch of different stuff. Um, but essentially, uh, a lot of these things are known. The time to expiration is known. The current stock price is observable. The strike price is known. Uh, the risk-free rate is known. And so the only unknown is the sigma. And so that's what everybody spends their time trying to figure out what is the sigma, the implied volatility of the underlying. Um, and essentially what happens... Right, so I'll just let you read this. It's very wordy. Uh, but essentially, suppose that the, uh, the Black-Scholes comes up with a value of 5 bucks for a specific option. Then a market maker will bid 450 at 550. Uh, essentially, because if the fair value is 5 and he's paying, he basically wants to pay undervalue and sell overvalue. Uh, when he pays 450 and then sells, so a market maker will um, put a bid for 100 of these calls, and if someone hits his bid, meaning someone sells his bid, uh, he'll go into the underlying and he'll actually make, he'll sell a certain amount of the underlying. And uh, at that point, and that's based on the delta of the option. And what happens at that point is um, the only thing that affects, um, barring, barring a change of interest rates, uh, the only thing that affects the price of that option is the actual implied volatility of the underlying. So if, you know, another uh, financial crisis happen and volatility explodes, those options are going to become very valuable. Um, so that's what those guys are betting on, basically. And I'll say one more thing about options is you can combine options in a lot of different ways. One specific way is uh, called the butterfly. <clears throat> so, for example, you can buy a buy one 10 strike call, sell two 15 strike calls, and buy one 20 strike call, and that will be the P&L graph at expiration. This little apex here is where uh, the strike price, you'll make your maximum profit where the strike price of the short two calls um, is, and then you'll lose money if it goes out. But you have a predefined loss, and you predefined maximum uh, gain. Okay, so that's enough about options. And <coughs> so everyone in the trading industry talks about edge and what is edge. And there's a lot of different ways to explain what an edge is. Um, you may have heard of Gecko or Citadel, and it appears that their edge a lot of times will come from being co-located next to the exchange, having very fast connections, um, and computer software that processes messages faster than anybody else. Um, that is one piece of their edge. But mostly, um, 
you want to have a positive mathematical expectation. And uh, what that boils down to is um, the, uh, uh, well, a good example is the expected value of a dice roll. So the probability of rolling a one is one out of, one out of six. Uh, same with the probability of rolling a two and a three, uh, dot, 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 to a six. And so if you weight each of those values by the probability, you come with an expected value of three and a half. That means over the very, very long term, if you wrote down, you know, all the different uh, uh, values that you rolled, they would basically average out to three and a half. Uh, and so that's basically the tenant of how a tenant of how a casino makes money. Um, and that's not to imply that the stock market is a casino. Um, so in roulette, you have a wheel numbered 1 to 36 with pocket numbers 0 and 00, um, 18 red, 18 black, and 2 of the green. And so um, I'll ask you, what's the expected value of a $1 bet on red? So I'll let you think about that for a moment. It's very similar to the previous example. And so you have an 18 of 38 chance of the ball landing on red, 20 of 38 of the chance of ball landing on black or green, uh, not red. So you'll lose one if the ball doesn't land on red, win one if the ball does land on red. Uh, therefore, the expected value of a dollar bet is negative uh, five cents, basically. So on each individual dollar bet on red, you can expect to lose about five cents. And, of course, if you lose five cents, then the casino makes five cents, and that is the house advantage, or that's the casino's edge. So knowing all of these different things um, that you need an edge, um, you know, let's try and use that knowledge and some other statistical uh, techniques to uh, come up with a strategy. Um, the best strategies come from some fundamental economic reasoning and uh, that a lot of times is because when you when you look at different pieces of data you might um, run some analysis of corn futures prices against natural gas and you might find some some relationship that at least over the three months is, has held some statistical weight it, it seems like corn predicts natural natural gas prices um, you know that looks good and, and on paper and everything, but of course, there isn't really any kind of economic tie, at least that I can think of, between corn and natural gas. So you would want to be very wary when you, when you come up with strategies or, or statistical relationships that really cannot be explained. Um, so, you know, so for example, something that would um, have economic reasoning would be uh, Refiners in the Gulf having to shut down ahead of a looming hurricane, thus crude oil futures would, would rally due to tighten supply. Um, okay. I elected to look at an actual trading strategy that we trade traded at WH. Um, it's a very simple, almost rudimentary strategy, but it's based on the iShares MSCI Emerging Markets ETF. Uh, versus a basketed ETF that closely replic replicate the movement of EEM. All right, so what is EEM? Uh, Exchange-traded fund holding 823 securities uh, aims to actually track the index. So the index itself may have, will probably most likely own 
um, all 823 securities, but you know the index doesn't actually the index company MSCI doesn't have to go out and buy anything. Um, they just say this is what the index is, and and then they just kind of on paper write down what the paper profit or loss or percentage return would be. And so e, what EM, the, the MSCI, or, or rather iShares, aims to do is just track that index closely. They're not trying to beat that index. Um, they certainly don't want to underperform the index, so they will because of fees. Um, but they want to keep those fees at a minimum and just give you the solid total return of this EEM. All right. So the top holdings from the iShares website, I think... Uh, you, can, you might be able to see that. Maybe in the back you don't. But um, Samsung makes up three point three point basically eight uh, percent. Taiwan Semiconductor two and a quarter, and uh, China Mobile one point eight one percent, and on and on. Um, so, so at a first glance, that's what we did. We said we'll take a look at the underlying securities. We'll try to predict where EM should be trading based on these, because <clears throat> even though EM is trying to track the index. The only way that EEM's price will change is if people come in and bid and offer EEM. Uh, this, the EEM actual instrument, you can go to your Ameritrade account now and buy it. The only reason the price will change is because people are trading it. It won't just automatically change just because the underlying securities themselves are changing. It takes people actually going out and bidding and offering it to, for it to change. So it turned out... Right, so we looked at the individual equities and nothing seemed to work. Um, and then so the top ten, we, we looked at the top ten holdings, uh, but they weren't very predictive EM performance. Uh, but that's okay. So we looked at the countries that, have, that represent the index. And you'll see that China makes up uh, just under 19%. Uh, South Korea is just under 16 Brazil is 11 and, a half, and on and on. And, of course, there's that other at the bottom of about 14%. Um, but that's okay. So we have so there's three, six, nine countries that make up 86% of the the index. So we were really interested in that. So we so this is some sort of fundamental reason of okay, the, if we can find things that replicate these nine countries, there's a fundamental reason why those should predict EM. So we we started there. <coughs> Okay, so we looked at the basket of ETFs of countries that make up the EEM, and it turned out they did a quote-unquote good job of predicting EEM, or wanted to. We wanted to first, we wanted to see if they did a good job. Um, and so if that's true, then we'll, we'll know that when that basket seems to say, well, EEM should actually be trading 1% higher uh, than it actually is, then we'll know EEM is relatively underpriced relative to this basket, and so we'll buy EM in order to hedge ourselves um, due to any sort of external factors. We'll actually short sale the basket. And short sale, what that essentially means is to sell something you don't own. Um, and it may be surprising, but every single morning uh, before we would trade these things, we would actually have to submit a list, a big old list. Um, we would automatically submit it, but we'd have to submit it to the bank. Uh, we were clearing through Bank of America at that point, and Bank of America would have to go out into the street and see if they could borrow these different securities. They may have these securities in their inventory, or they may not, so they actually have to go out and borrow. And there's actually a cost associated with shorting any of these things. And some of, some things, um, 
you know, only costs 1.5% a year to short, but some things that are in short supply cost 8%. So there's even more factors uh, you have to consider before you go out and, and trade this stuff. Uh, all right, so next we collected data for each of EM and the nine country ETFs cited pre previously. Did I cite them previously? That is a good question. Uh, I think we're actually going to get there. So tools, tools of the trade, R. Um, how many people have heard of R before? Uh, Keith. And that's, that's it. So Keith, Keith has heard of R. Um, how many people have heard of Mathematica and uh, MATLAB? All right, a couple more. So uh, a lot of the proprietary trading firms use a lot of these different tools, uh, MATLAB being one. MATLAB is, um, I actually haven't used MATLAB a whole ton, but it's essentially from any time that I've had to interact with it, it looks a lot and sounds a lot and, and behaves a lot like R. And I know what R is because it's a, like listed here, free, t free statistical software. Uh, used across many in industries outside of finance. Um, and you can basically go online, you can download the R GUI, uh, and you can start working with it right now. It's free. Um, it's very heavily supported by academics around the world. If you need to know how to do something or if you think, you know, I'd really like to run this statistical test or whatever, um, there's probably a package built for that already, and it's freely available to you. Um, through R and very easy to uh, to find. Uh, again, it's a scripting language, meaning you don't need to compile any co code. I mean, you can use it as a very powerful calculator. You can do something as simple as typing in three plus three equals, you know, or n equals three plus three, and find out what uh, three plus three equals. Or you can go on and on. But uh, basically, you don't. If anyone's taken C plus plus, you don't have to write out a whole bunch of code try to make it compile first, hope that you don't have any errors, and then get to work with it. You can just kind of plug and play right there. Um, okay. All right, so packages we'll be using. Um, QuantMod is a package that allows you to, um, the, the biggest draw is it allows you to pull data from Yahoo uh, directly uh, into R and, uh, and use it. So you... I don't know if anyone's ever tried to actually download data from Yahoo and use it in Excel and then manipulate it around, but you know it can take some time to. Um, and you could write a macro to manipulate it, but in with QuantMod and R, it's it's done almost instantaneously. There's really um, nothing you need to do. In fact, further down here, in order to even get the package, all you have to do is type this this tiny little script here. These two packages we'll be using. Um, XTS is extensible time series. Uh, and it essentially lets you run a, little, a lot of different, uh, first, it puts that data into a data structure that allows for very easy manipulation of the data, um, especially with regard to, you know, something as simple as when is the end of day or break this time series into minutes or five-minute buckets or ten-minute buckets. From there, you can do a lot of time series analysis with, with it, too. Um, and time series um, is this whole... I guess branch of statistics, which uh, when you use when you run things like simple linear regressions, uh, which we're going to talk about shortly, um, there's a lot of assumptions. One of them being that there's no multicollinearity between the um, uh, the predictor variables or or even the residuals, and um, 
in a lot of times in time series there is, in financial time series there is a lot of uh, a lot of that kind of error, and you have to account for it. Otherwise, your assumptions that you make once you build your model are probably going to be off by a rather large amount. Um, Okay, so again, so you can get these packages by typing in this script, and then you can load the packages by typing in library XDS, library quantmod, and, and that's it. You're ready to go. That's how simple it is. Um, and again, all of this is free, whereas I think MATLAB, I know MATLAB is not free, and it's rather expensive. Um, all right, so country ETFs, right. Uh, so we looked out into the universe of ETFs, and we saw that there's a China ETF um, as ticker FXI, South Korea's EWY, and all of these ETFs had very good volume. That's pretty important. Um, you want to be trading things in general that have uh, a lot of volume, and mostly because that implies there's going to be liquidity, which further implies that the bid-ask spread in that product is, is going to be tiny. Um, so the bid-ask spread basically, you know, um, for a stock like um, Ford, and I'm not even sure what Ford is trading now, but if it's like $9 a share, um, the bid-ask spread is going to be 9.00 at 9.01. Someone will be willing to buy Ford stock from you for, for $9, and they'll sell it to you for $9 and one penny. Um, now, something like, you know, and Ford is, is a very liquid stock. I mean, it trades probably, I don't know, 20, 30 million times, 20, 30 million shares a day. Um, but something like, you know, um, some Twitter, unknown, obscure Twitter competitor who went public a week before Twitter, if it only trades 10,000 times a day, that bid-ask spread is going to be $9 at $10, which is very wide. And, um, and you're not going to be able to trade, uh, get, out, get off enough size on the bid or ask. Um, and you're also going to have to cross a bid-ask spread that's very wide. And that inherently is a cost. Um, and if enough of these bid-ask spreads were wide, um, even though that basket may be very predictive of EEM, we can't really do anything with it because we'll never be able to trade um, nine wide bid-ask spreads, cross the bid-ask spread, and then still be able to make money with EEM because of the cost. Um, all right, so getting the data... Uh, so we got the 10 ETFs, of course, including EM. One of the ETFs, EPI, which was, uh, I think, India, only had uh, just over 1,400 days of data available, probably, probably because it was created right around there. And so we resized each of the other ETFs to match this amount. Uh, and we also use the adjusted data. There's a bunch of different columns. There's an open, high, low, close, um, volume, and an adjusted. And the adjusted will... Um, that's basically the price that accounts for any uh, splits or dividends, uh, and it basically normalizes that that uh, stock price, so you don't have to worry about any of those different corporate actions. Okay, and then we divided the data in half um, into an in-sample and out-of-sample data set. So <clears throat> we'll actually run the regression model on the in-sample data set, and we'll get our regression weights and uh, we'll kind of take a look at the model, see how predictive it is. And then in order to validate the model, um, the validation should occur. Validation meaning, you know, well, how does this thing stand up to the real world? We'll apply all those weights to the out-of-sample, 
and just kind of take a peek and see, well, does this thing hold up to the stand, you know, to the test of time, or does it kind of fall apart? Um, all right, so that's what EEM looks like for the entire time series um, that we downloaded. So from February 26, 2008, um, up until I think I I did this like three or four weeks ago, so probably three or four weeks ago. Um, so you'll see kind of, you can kind of see where the financial crisis occurred, where EM goes from 45 down to $20 per, per share, and then kind of rebounds and, and stays flatlined for a while. All right, well, interest concept uh, correlation, I think most people inherently know what, when, when two things are correlated, what that necessarily means. Um, so essentially what when you're looking at the correlation figure for uh between two different things um you're looking at the the strength of the linear association uh between two variables so a correlation of zero implies no linear association between the variables though it does not necessarily imply that they're independent uh, correlation of one applies a perfect linear association between variables. That means if you can picture the graph of y equals x, um, when x equals five, we know for certain, uh, when x equals five, you know for certain that y equals five. And so there's, there's kind of, uh, one implies the other. Um, and then a correlation of negative one implies a perfect negative linear association between the variables. Um, and then as a rule of thumb, we use correlations greater than 0.7 or so to imply that there's a tendency for y to increase with increasing levels in x. Um, one thing I've learned about statistics is that there are a lot of heuristics used. Um, you know, p-values are always, uh, if your, your p-value is less than 5%, the significance level, then you have something that's significant. And, um, and that generally comes from from the tails of the normal distribution, but everyone kind of applies these uh, um, different here. I know one of my professors at, at DePaul now is, um, um, if the p-value's um, 0.6 or 0.65, and she uses these kind of hard and true figures to, uh, to define whether things are correlated or not. Um, I know in, in finance it kind of is, is not really that stringent, so, but we did use a a correlation greater than 0.7 or so to imply that, you know, maybe there's something there. So you always run this kind of correlation between things to see if there's even um, any point in um, continuing on with any further statistical analysis. Um, and so then this is the correlation matrix between EM and the nine ETFs. You'll see the, the, um, the diagonal has all ones, and that's just because that's going to be the correlation between, for example, in the top left, EM and EM. Um, which, of course, should have a correlation of one. But when you go across the top row and look at EM correlated with everything else, um, everything seems pretty high. Um, and, of course, if you look at FXI and in the, the column, FXI against everything else, it looks pretty correlated, too. So that that's what I was talking about earlier, is that a lot of these things are going to be very correlated with one another. Um, so you kind of need to use better techniques than we're going to use here to really get a sense of whether there's any relationship there. But for our intensive purposes, I think this will be fine. Um, so here's an example of a plot between, a uh, scatter plot between EEM and RSX, which I think is the, 
the Russian um, ETF. So you'll see kind of for a long time here, um, there's this almost you know very nice defined relationship here, and then at a different time the relationship kind of breaks apart and then it does one of these. So you know you'd have to investigate further. Well, why you know what happened there? Was there some fundamental reason? the relationship changed. And you'd want to know that certainly before you started trading this thing. Um, this is just an, another summary of <clears throat> what I just said. Is, um, For example, the lowest correlation between EEM and, and the ETFs is with RSX, which is at 0.883, which is really high. <coughs> right, so then we'll say that there, is a, there seems to be a linear relationship between EEM and the several country ETFs, and then so we'll move forward with, by doing a linear regression of EM against this basket of country ETFs. All right, so just, so we're trying to predict EM by using the nine country ETFs. So the model is going to look something like this, where EM is equal to beta naught, which is just going to be the, the y-intercept, uh, plus beta, beta 1 of FXI. Uh, plus all the rest of the ETFs with their, their own personal betas, and plus that that error term at the end. And we're going to make the the really big assumption that that error term is normally distributed with a mean of zero and uh, constant variance and nine other assumptions, which are most certainly going to be valid, invalidated in the real world, but we're just going to go ahead and make that assumption. Um, and right, so so beta naught is, is a very useless parameter uh, because generally the only time we would ever witness... Um, that y-intercept would be if all the other nine country ETFs were, were zero. Well, then EM would probably be zero. So kind of hard to interpret what that is. Uh, B1, beta 1, represents the slope of FXI. So if we held everything else constant, um, it's how much we'd expect EM to change with a one-point change in FXI. And the, the error term. Um, uh, which which is going to ultimately uh, be used to kind of, they're going to be the residuals of the model. Um, and ultimately, that turns out to be the most interesting aspects of these kind of multiple linear regressions. You analyze the residuals and try to test the different assumptions and, and try to see, you know, if you can make sense of anything. And, okay. Right, so here's the model. Uh, we conduct a linear regression of EM against nine ETFs. Um, and this is done very simply in R. Um, I probably should have printed the code, but in essence, you'll see here uh, the estimate for the intercept is 1.61, um, and the estimate for the beta of FXI for the in-sample data is uh, 0.16. Um, you have a standard error. The T values, the, the, the kind of statistic value. So we're, we're trying to see if this is these. All the T values are from. Uh, we do individual T tests for all these different parameters, and we're just trying to find out. The hypothesis is that this parameter is parameter estimate is no different than zero, statistically speaking. Um, and if you look at the P values, they're all e to the negative 16, which means they're tiny, 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 um, less than uh, a significance level of 0.05. Um, so we'll say that these are actually, all of these parameter estimates are different than zero, and uh, we can use them in any kind of model that we want to build.
and this is just kind of a recap of what I said. Um, the R squared um, was 0.9991, uh, which means that w almost 100% of the variability in EEM is explained by this model. It means that the predictor variables, which are, are ETFs, um, completely explain uh, any of the variability of uh, EEM. So, you know, this is kind of interesting. All right, so a plot of the residuals over time for the for the in-sample data. You'll see that, um, I think you'll remember, I said right around here was the, the financial crisis, so things really go nuts right around here. But in general, the, the residuals oscillate around zero. Um, what else do we got? Residuals ver versus the fitted value. So here we would kind of look at and see what we wouldn't want to see is something like, for you know lower fitted values, we have residuals that kind of oscillate like the mouse is going, and then once we get higher, we get um, a bigger variance in the residuals. Then um, that would mean something like maybe we left out some predictor variable that we could have included that would have uh, explained that that variability. But um, like I said before, the R squared was so high that uh, the model actually does a pretty good job of capturing all that variance. Um, normal QQ plot, so we just want to kind of take a look at each of the uh, residuals based on um, what the expected residual would be based on normal normal probability distribution. So as long as um, you see this kind of straight line, uh, you can't really, I guess you can see it better on the board, but you kind of see the, the line here. This is where the normal distribution would kind of say, okay, this is where, uh, how often, or where that residual uh, would be if this was truly a normally, if the residuals were truly normally distributed. And you see there's a little divergence here um, where our residuals are actually much higher than where the normal distribution would actually predict them to be. So that's kind of a violation of the model already. So it's, um, you know, there's techniques to deal with that, of course. Um, um, but let's see what else we have. Um, Right, so then the most, most interesting part is when you apply these parameter estimates to out-of-sample data to really get a sense of, well, do these weights that I found, these betas, when I apply them to the stock for new data that's coming in, do they do a good job of predicting EM? And again, if they do, if the model continues to work for new data, then um, maybe I have a trading strategy. If, um, again, if the basket says EM should be trading you know, the basket's up 2% and EM kind of has done nothing, then maybe we buy EM and we sell the basket and then we can capture that that difference, that relative arbitrage almost. Um, and so, let's see, correlation of the out-of-sample EM data and out-of-sample EM prediction is uh, 0.986, which is very high. Um, Let's see, and then we'll, to get a sense of how, we're, how well we're able to predict EEM given the above, we'll plot the difference between EEM and the prediction of EEM, uh, which is the uh, residuals. And so we take a look at this. And this is over from December 2010 to the present day. <coughs> and if we could cover up kind of, you know, maybe from here to the right, this small time period, it seems to do an okay job of predicting um, where EEM should be. With What we're looking for is for this, these residuals to kind of oscillate around a certain value. 
um, we don't want them to do something like this, kind of diverge in some haphazard direction. Um, what we want is just a nice little back and forth, really, would be ideal. Um, but assuming we had that really nice oscillation back and forth, okay, well, what do we want to do now? Do we want to just plow in? Um, really, at this point, what we want to do, now this kind of um, really broad brushstroke analysis, you know, we're done. Now we want to apply it to the real world, but in a simulated setting. So what we'll do, we'll take these parameter estimates, we'll form this model, we'll conduct a backtest. And what we do with the backtest is, uh, what we could have done is taken that out of sample data and conducted a back test with it. And uh, essentially, we're going to look at real bid and ask spreads. We're going to input real um, commission amounts. We're going to take a look at the size on the bid and ask, the size bid and the size offered, how many shares are bid or offered. Um, we're going to make an assumption about slippage, meaning oh, we tried to sell a price of eight on some stock, but we actually got filled at seven half. And so we have to incorporate a slippage amount, uh, which is really just another expense. And so we'll do the, do the back test, and then we'll um, take a look at the results. And like I said, real-time bid and ask data, um, and incorporate commissions, exchange fees. There are all sorts of fees associated with this stuff. And ultimately, we're looking for a few different things. One, does it make money? Um, if it doesn't make money, then we can just scrap the whole thing and then and move on. Um, it's pretty, that kind of goes without saying. Uh, number two, we'll look at the something called the Sharpe ratio or some modified information ratio. And what that's going to be is the average uh, amount of profit, uh, whether it's, you know, the percentage return for one percentage point uh, unit of volatility. And so what you want to see is really big Sharpe ratios. Um, Mostly because even if this thing makes money over time, if you have to withstand big drawdowns, um, depending on who the ultimate, um, for example, the owner of my firm doesn't want to have really big drawdowns with his capital. That's not what he's looking for. Um, you know, if it's an independent investor who has a really strong stomach and can stand these drawdowns, then maybe he's okay. He's fine. He's willing to trade this thing because it makes a bunch of money, but he has to uh, kind of tough it out for a while. Um, so one way to kind of um, have a parameter that, that estimates how much pain you may have to take for, for, uh, to make a buck, basically, is the Sharpe ratio. Um, we'd like to see upward trending equity curves. Um, the best kind would be a line that begins in the lower left of the chart and extends to the upper right of the chart. Um, that's because it would have no volatility in the return. It would, you just make a little bit of money every day with no volatility, uh, you would be pretty certain about the model, pretty certain about the strategy. Um, but it's when you experience that first drawdown is when you start to really question the um, the model itself and, and whether something's changed. Uh, that's the big thing. Um, so, um, so, right, so we'd like nice little well-behaved equity curves. Um, and then I uh, alluded to it before, uh, we'd like to take a look at the length and size of the largest drawdown. Um, that's kind of the beginning of the whole risk management process. So if we backtest over three years of data and we start out with $100,000 of capital and uh, at some point we have to withstand $60,000 drawdown, um, we kind of have to, you know, really if we're only 
if your boss or whomever who you're trading for for your own your own purposes if uh if that's going to basically take you below the zero line of the capital that's been allocated to you, you really can't trade that big. So you have to um, size your position accordingly based on how much capital you have. All right, so slightly different topic. Um, if you're interested in a career as a trader, um, it would be pretty valuable to know a few things about statistics. Um, the big thing, uh, so non-parametric statistics, so I talked about the linear regression model having all sorts of different assumptions about the residuals and um, non-parametric statistics in general don't uh, assume any kind of distribution. Um, uh, for example, the error term particular assumes the residuals are normally distributed with constant variance. Uh, that usually never happens. Uh, so non-parametric techniques could kind of, so when you run the linear regression, um, and the residuals have non-constant variance, and you come up with parameter estimates, and you think, wow, this is great. Um, you know, the standard error of those uh, regression parameters uh, may be, uh, you know, understated by some substantial amount, and in fact, those parameter estimates were ended up being zero. So that's just one kind of outcome of a violation of any of these uh, uh, assumptions. All right, and then uh, statistical learning. I think people um, have probably heard of uh, machine learning or big data, and, and you're trying to find hidden patterns in a huge amount of data, and uh, you're trying to make your model evolve with new data that comes in. You know, new data comes in, is it important to the model? Does it change the model? And, uh, you know, because you can kind of manually run these different things, but a lot of the big firms, a lot of the big hedge funds are running uh, millions of these models every single day, taking into new, taking into account new, uh, you know, new um, data. Not only you know s the actual stock market price data, but then they put in fundamental uh, data like un unemployment numbers. They'll take a look at the the credit spreads between uh, corporate bonds and risk-free bonds, and uh, they'll incorporate all of this stuff and try to really uncover hidden properties that you may may or may not be immediately uh, recognizable. And um, being able to do any of this stuff, it would be helpful to know how to program. Um, and not necessarily C++, um, but I alluded to R, of course. That's what I used a ton. Um, Python is another um, piece of software I've used a little bit in the past, but um, from what I hear, a lot of different shops use it. Uh, Excel VBA, coincidentally, is used a ton. And, of course, uh, uh, MATLAB. And and I put a hint that the first two are free, the third comes with the PC, PC purchase, and the fourth is actually rather expensive. So if you wanted to get started at home today, um, I would try to knock out the first two before hitting the fourth. Um, and when I got started, I read a bunch of different books. Um, actually, one of the new ones that came out was Hedge Fund Market Wizards by Jack Schwager. Um, Jack Schwager, over the last 30, 30 years, has interviewed all sorts of traders, different hedge fund guys or independent people. Or, um, and uh, But the Hedge Fund Market Wizards was pretty interesting because uh, he talks specifically to guys who work in this kind of statistical arena. D.E. Shaw of the Shaw Group out in New York, um, I know that they were... They're some of like the first guys to really get into finance and, and use statistics and and grind out a living. And um, and Jeffrey Woodruff was an interesting interview um, of a guy who um, 
really had no mathematical training, uh, but just taught himself how to do statistical learning, and now he runs a $6 billion hedge fund in Virginia. So um, worth checking out to kind of get an idea of how these guys went about building their businesses. Uh, and then if you want to le- learn about options, market making, um, options, volatility, and pricing by Sheldon Natenberg is pretty much indispensable. Uh, you'll learn everything from the very basics to more advanced topics of market making. Uh, and then I included a, a link here um, for a documentary. If you want to know more about the pits, um, the trading pits, uh, Florida's documentary about Chicago's trading pits, and there's a link there. It's on YouTube. And that's it. So if anyone has any questions, I'll be glad to answer them. Um, I took... I took level one in December 2010, level two June 2011, and level three June of 2012. And then at that point, I had the four years requisite um, work experience, so I was able to get the charter in September 2012. Anyone else? What ETFs and EM are? Yeah, okay, so... Um, if you think about maybe we want to, you and I have a, a company, a fund company, and all we want to do is uh, there's this index, and it's an emerging markets index, and it's, it's by a different company called MSCI, and all they do is sit around, and, and they want to create benchmarks for you know, the entire world, basically. So a pension fund, when they say, okay, I've given money to this guy because I want him, I want access to emerging markets, I want exposure because I think there's going to be growth, but then how do you measure that guy against what you could have done in, in essentially a passive portfolio and in different securities? You would look at what MSCI has created, which is an emerging markets index. And so that's the benchmark that that particular fund manager would be measured against. So ETFs are this new thing where, well, rather than give it to a guy and let him take 2% of your money every year in expenses, why don't we just create something that's completely passive? We're not even trying to beat the index like the pension fund's manager would be trying to do. We're just trying to match completely that index. So, so what do they do? They actually, they'll, they'll get a ton of money, basically, first. You know, maybe they take a billion dollars, and they buy those 823 or whatever securities in the proportions that MSCI has laid out uh, in order to just match the index. So from there, if you personally, as, a, as an individual investor, wanted access to emerging markets but didn't want to, you know, give it to some um, active manager who is going to try to beat this index, you're, you're, you're just like, fine, I just want the passive, I just want to make the expected return of 9% a year. Um, you, could, you can click trade um, EM right now. It's a ticker symbol, tickle, bleh, ticker symbol just like, GM is just like uh, Ford stock is. Um, it trades and looks and feels just like a stock. But that you can think of that stock then has claim on the assets of that fund, which are going to be those 823 different um, securities that make up that fund. So Wall Street basically exists to take things, package them up wholesale, and sell them off retail for, for more money. And that's just another example of Wall Street doing what it's done. Package stuff up and sell it off. <laughs> Any other uh, questions? Um, 
I I know I did this like two weeks ago, so it's got to be right around wherever that chart was. Or I guess I could just go to I could just go to Yahoo and cheat. So if you if you go to here, the search bar is that a search bar? Let's go here uh, or Google. So you can go EM stock. Uh, Forty dollars and sixty-four cents. So you can call up your broker now and and buy this thing just like you would buy any other stock. But that's not advice to buy stock. Yeah, let me put that. <laughs> this is going on on the internet. Okay. So I think so. Let's have a round of applause. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.